sinful man finally able in Christ to boldly approach God. He has created this giant potential, a tree heavy with delicious and nourishing food, and nearby there are people starving for such fare. Now he seeks to bring those two together. For this reason I make this prayer. For this reason I pray that you would eat and be saved and be strengthened and act. Can you see what you have in Jesus? Have you been listening to what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell you? God is everything you could ever hope for. And then a very great deal more. I pray that you would grasp and live in the reality of what I just told you. And that is my prayer for me and you as well today. That because of what we hear, we will grasp what it is that we have been given. And the nature of whom we serve. And that knowledge will make a real and lasting difference to the way we live our lives from here on. Amen. Now, I find myself in the awkward position of just having made the kind of ringing statement that really should finish the sermon, not begin it. However, you have paid for the full 80 minutes, and I should not rob you of even one single moment. So, we must press on to the rest of the text. Verse 14. For this reason... I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we read this verse today, it won't seem at all unusual that Paul speaks about bowing in prayer. But at the time this was written, the usual posture for prayer by both Jew and Gentile was actually standing and looking up to heaven. Kneeling in the ancient world signified subordination, civility or worship. So the use of this word here, which is fairly unusual in the New Testament, gives us a picture of how deeply Paul felt about this prayer. He knew, as he has just made plain, that the believer can approach God with boldness, for it is through Jesus that we have this privilege, such that factually, whether we stand or sit or lie down or even hang upside down for that matter, has absolutely no bearing on God hearing and considering our prayer. This, though, was a really big prayer. It was a very serious prayer to Almighty God that demanded not just the attitude of the heart but the attitude of the whole man and in fact it echoes how Jesus himself prayed as he sweated blood in the garden of Gethsemane. He was on his knees there. It seems to me that this image we have of a man kneeling isn't just about a reverent man in deep appeal to his Lord but is also there for us to see just how earnestly Paul wanted us to get his message. He's saying to us, I'm really serious here. I want you to take what I'm saying in the same way. I just want to reiterate that it's the message that is important, not the kneeling. By all means, kneel if you wish when you pray. But we do not need to misunderstand this verse to say that sore knees will guarantee that our prayers are taken any more seriously by God. If we are saved by grace, through faith in Christ, then God our Father hears and sovereignly acts on every single prayer we make, with genuineness of heart, and no matter what the position of our body. That is a promise. In this regard, it's very interesting that the word used for to here, in as I bow my knee to the Father, indicates direction, not just action, because it actually means forwards. 
The Christian doesn't just cast their prayer hopelessly to the wind in the hope that some passing deity may take pity on them or may be pleased by what, by what they hear and then answer their prayer. But they know that the source of their lives and everything in them is God their Father. Moreover, they have confidence in the direct access to God's ear that Christ has bought them with his blood. So they, fold, they face boldly towards him since they know that his ear will hear his children with loving, tender concern and that he does have the power and the wisdom to act in their best interests. Here's a little quote from a hymn by John Newton. It says, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Isn't that wonderful? Hey, friends, is our gift and privilege, but we shouldn't just hold it to ourselves. We must go and share it with the world. On to verse 15. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now the Greek word that's used for family here is patria. And what it means is people of successive generations who are related by birth. Patria can refer to people linked over a relatively long period of time by a line of descent to a common ancestor, for example a family or clan. It can mean a relatively large body of people existing together at one single moment and linked through ancestry and socio-political interests like a nation. In other words, it refers to all the descendants of a particular patriarch. Okay? There's the root. For example, the whole Jewish nation could be traced back to Abraham and be called the patria of Abraham. However, Paul didn't mean to refer to the single family unit as we do in our culture. He means for us to see that all of creation, the whole thing in heaven and earth, are the patria of God because he is the creator. This vision of the Lord of the source is a, sorry. This vision of the Lord as the source of all things is important because in a little while we're going to see Paul appealing for some pretty special gifts, the kind that only a creature's creator with a capital C could give. Are you interested in your family history? I am. Unfortunately, through a variety of circumstances, it's not been possible to trace my ancestry back very far, but um, my uncle, who has much more scholarly inclinations than I have, has been digging away at this for some years, and he's promising some revelations soon. I wonder what they will be. Now, why am I so interested in the past? After all, I, I can't change it. I have no control over what it was. Yeah, I suspect it's because I hope that I'm related to someone famous, preferably somebody rich and famous, because that would help to make me a bit more important. And I suspect I'm not alone in this hope. But the actuality for the Christian is far more profound and wonderful. Yes, I may have an earthly ancestor who was descended from Richard the Lionheart, but that means absolutely nothing in eternity, or even for today. As a Christian, however, my father is none other than the creator and sustainer of all things. This can't be a matter of pride to me, but a source of wonder and awe that such a being would care to make me his child. We 
we are the patriot of God and we should be grateful for that and live in the hope that that kinship brings. Paul knew this and since he had that confidence, he makes a strong petition. Here it comes, verse 16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And you'll notice that I've given you a decent chunk of the text here all at once rather than just one verse. And that's because they actually live together. One request just flows into the next. And one commentator that I looked at, he likened them to the segments of a telescope. Now, what did he mean? Well, Paul starts extending that telescope with his initial appeal to the Father. And then another segment here, by praying that the Holy Spirit would provide spiritual strength, so that, and the final segment comes out, Christ would live in our hearts by the means of faith. Thus, with this sort of arrangement, we should have both a strong anchor point and a means of nourishment, so that we may have an understanding of just how enormously Jesus loves us and therefore be entirely filled with the fullness of God. Do you see how neatly those things fit together? And in the same way that a telescope brings distant things close to us, they will bring the reality of our relationship with God close to us. Let's go on to look at these verses now in a bit more detail. At the heart of Paul's first petition for his readers is a request for power, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Now, you might have heard of or even used the saying, the whole nine yards. Okay? And your piece of useless information today is that reputedly the ammunition belt on some World War II fighter planes was nine yards long. So if you were in battle and you gave your opponent the whole lot, you gave him the whole nine yards. Okay? And today that's come to be understood to mean completely for everything. And that's what Paul is asking God for in terms of power. He requests a measure relative to the riches of God's glory. How much do you think that might be? Well, here's a clue. When you stare up at the night sky, one of those, you know, those really, really clear nights you get somewhere in the bush where there's no background light, okay, and the stars, they just blaze at you in crystal glory. Remember that the myriad lights you see there are a little literal display of some of God's glory. The heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And actually, we sang about that just now, didn't we? The whole is a very large amount, certainly more than any human can comprehend. And it is from that store that God will award his strength. He will never run out. He has no lack, and he has no need to be thrifty. He can and does give generously. Note the words according to. What they mean is in proportion to, not out of. And I'll illustrate the difference. Okay? If you met Bill Gates and he gave you $10, okay, that would certainly be out of, his, out of his fortune. 
But if he gave you $10 million, that would be in proportion to his fortune. God will give us power through his spirit in proportion to his glory for spiritual strength. More power than we can imagine or in fact generally dare to ask for. The Greek word that is rendered might here is our old friend dunamis, which we've spoken about before. And dunamis is the root word for modern words like dynamo and dynamite. It is dynamic power. The word dynamic always carries with it a picture of motion. Likewise, the might that comes from the spirit must and does create movement. It isn't just like some vast body of water that's held up high above a deep gorge by a wall of concrete that merely has the potential for power. There is a very instructive use of dunamis later in 2 Timothy 3. Yeah, I'll read it for you. It says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, holy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And that power is that dunamis word again. And from such people, turn away. The point is that the so-called godliness of these men is a sham and devoid of any real power to break the hold of sin. Those who practice such deception, well, they enjoy the external expressions of worship so that they look good. But internally, they are violently at odds with the gospel's effect of subduing sin and nurturing holiness. They lack the internal ability or capability, the dunamis, because they lack the indwelling spirit who strengthens with power, as Paul is praying here. During preparation of the sermon, at this point I had made a little note to myself that asked if we are to be filled, will that mean displacing or adding to something that exists, replacing what is already there or perhaps even pouring into an empty space? It is emphatically the last. Unsaved humans completely lack the ability to prevail against sin. There is a space that needs to be filled. However, for for those who do possess the indwelling spirit and divine dunamis, there is that internal ability to wage victorious war with the three mortal enemies, which is the world, the flesh, and the devil, who are all seeking to turn us from God and onto self with its consequent ungodly, unholy attitudes and actions. So we can readily see the importance of praying for believers to be strengthened with dunamis power through the Spirit in their inner man. Speaking of that inner man, well, what is it? Is it the heart or the lungs perhaps? Well, no. Because in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul speaks about our inner person being renewed day by day, while our outer person is perishing. It's clear then that this inner man must be our heart or mind, whilst the outer person is the physical body. Thus, as an illustration, the usual strength given by the Spirit will not enable us to physically lift an elephant, but will allow us to vigorously eat it one bite at a time. And I say usual because we can never deny God the ability to accomplish the extraordinary. The impossible will become possible through God's strength 
exercised through the Spirit. Let's move on to verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Have you noticed by this point that Paul has actually addressed every member of the Trinity? He started with the Father, the Creator after whom all things are named, then on to the dunamis of the Spirit, and now he asks for the blessing of Christ dwelling in our hearts. Just stop here for a bit. How amazing is this revelation? It's so small to speak of, but it's so enormous to think about. Here we are. Insignificant pieces of flesh relative to the whole of creation. And yet God is prepared to engage us with every part of his being. Given how we have treated him, we might count it a privilege if he would devote even the smallest fraction of his attention to us. And yet in a way that is so practically revealing of his mighty love, he gives from the entirety of his person. What a precious God, and how humbling that he should act first and move towards us in this way. If he is prepared to commit his whole self to us, how can we not take this example by responding to him in the same way? You may be asking the question, why would it be necessary to ask Christ to dwell in our hearts? Isn't he already there if I'm a Christian? Well, you'd be right in that belief. So, simply presence is not the object of this prayer. Here it is not a question of him physically being in the believer, but rather his feeling at home there. He is a permanent resident in every, in every saved person, but this is a request that he might have full access to every room and closet, that he might not be grieved by sinful words, thoughts, or motives, or deeds, that he might enjoy unbroken fellowship with the believer. The Christian heart will thus become a home for Christ, the place where he loves to be, like the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Bethany. In effect, the apostle prays that the lordship of Christ might extend to the books we read, the work we do, the food we eat, the money we spend, the words we speak, in short, the minutest details of our lives. Caius Wust writes that Dr. Max Rach once said, to, said in the hearing of the writer, If we make room for the Holy Spirit, he will make room for the Lord Jesus. That is, if the saint lives in conscious dependence upon and yieldedness to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will make room for the Lord Jesus in the heart and life of the saint by eliminating from his life things that are sinful and of the world and thus enable the Spirit to make the Lord Jesus feel completely at home in his heart. Wonderful condescension of heaven's King to be content to live in a believer's heart and have fellowship with him. There's a key phrase in this statement that really illuminates the application of this matter, and that is conscious dependence upon and yieldedness to. Now, I've said many times, and trust me, I'm going to continue to say that sanctification, the day-by-day process in a believer's life of becoming more and more like Christ, is definitely a work of cooperation between humans and God. Whilst we cannot and must not in any way diminish God's pivotal role in the work, the fact remains that we are not free 
to relax and let God do everything. There's a common phrase, let go and let God, that to my mind is a subtle misrepresentation of this truth. And we must be careful about what we understand by it. Yes, we must yield to God, but that means walking along with him, not being carried on a stretcher. While I'm in, when I'm in conscious dependence upon the Holy Spirit, it means that I'm always aware that I'm weak in two senses. Firstly, I absolutely lack the means to reconcile myself to God because I'm elementally sinful in nature. Therefore, I must have his intervention to reconcile us. Secondly, as a consequence of that sinful nature, I have an ongoing problem with sin. God wants me to sin less. The flesh wants me to sin more. No human will ever win that conflict without the assistance and power of the Holy Spirit. And that is why Jesus speaks of him as the helper in John 14. However, God doesn't force himself on me. I can still choose to avoid the Spirit, pretend he isn't there, and never turn my face to him to ask for help or hold my actions up for his opinion. That is conscious defiance, the very opposite of conscious dependence. And I'm afraid of something I know I'm guilty of. And I guess if we're honest, a lot of people in this room would have to say yes as well. The thing is that dependence is still not enough on its own because I must also be yielded to. I must act on what the Spirit advises. I must not go to that place, say those words, or watch that movie. This is the real life process of sanctification. It's a flash word, but it isn't some fantastic or metaphysical or out-of-sight magic on the soul, but it is really a day-to-day and moment-to-moment engagement with God's Holy Spirit. The aim of sanctification is to become more Christ-like. If the outcome of dependentness and yieldedness is that Christ becomes a permanent and comfortable dweller in my heart, surely then, surely that absolutely cannot be without the result of godly inward and outward change physically realizing the aim of sanctification if Paul's prayer was answered what sort of character might we expect as a result of the combined action of the spirit and Jesus dwelling in our heart I'm sure you can think of many expressions of that relationship but I believe that one notable effect will be the rooting and grounding that Paul speaks of in this verse. And the illustration that he uses draws images from both agriculture and architecture. Being rooted literally means to cause to take root or to strengthen with roots. The picture it gives is to be stable, to render firm, to fix, to be firmly established, to be firmly fixed with the focus upon the source of such strength. We are firmly rooted into Christ's soil by love the moment he comes into our life and thus rooted we are able to grow strong and healthy. Grounded comes from the Greek thamiliu and it means foundational or fundamental. The picture it conveys is that of a house which is so firmly fixed to its foundation that it is not moved by winds or flood or by the stormy waves of suffering or the loud howling roar of our adversary, the devil. Warren Wiersbe has a true story which emphasizes the importance of Paul's prayer for believers to be grounded. He writes, 
In my second building program, we had to spend several thousand dollars taking soil tests because we were building over an old lake bed. For weeks, the men were laying out and pouring the footings. One day I complained to the architect and he replied, Pastor, the most important part of this building is the foundation. If you don't go deep, you can't go high. And that sentence has been a sermon to me ever since. In just the same way that Paul defined the mechanism of faith as the means for Christ dwelling in the heart, he specifies love as the construction material for our foundation. He uses the word agape, which is that type of love which is unconditional, sacrificial and giving, even to one's enemy. And of course, the ultimate example of this kind of love is the Father's love for sinful men as demonstrated by the Son's sacrifice on the cross. That is the love in which we are to be rounded, rooted and grounded. And on that foundation, we will go high. In real life, love of this sort will never be content to be held down by any building or stuck in the ground under a tree. It is the kind of love that finds expression as a way of life. The life of love is a life of kindness, selfishness, selflessness, that was a bad slip, brokenness and meekness. It is the life of Christ finding expression in the believer. How do you and I live that out day to day? At this point in the text, we are now fully equipped, strengthened with might through the Spirit, Christ dwelling in our hearts as a permanent resident, sustained and anchored by the sure root and foundation of love. We are ready to go. But where? What is the purpose of these things? That purpose is what we read next. That we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul actually uses some very strong words here, and of course I'm, not, I'm talking about their power, not bad language. What we read as may be able comes from a single word that is one of the strongest Greek words for strength, and it signifies a person who is completely capable of doing or experiencing something because they have the necessary power to do so. You know, I sort of had the picture on my mind of an Olympic athlete who's poised, quivering at the beginning of the 100 meter sprint. And you can see that, you know, every muscle is trained and, and they know where they have to go and they're ready to go. And that's the kind of thing that Paul is speaking about. I'm certain that any genuine recipient of the Spirit's strength and Christ's indwelling would certainly qualify in capability by a very substantial margin. Now, As you sit listening to this, you might be thinking that I'm talking about that fellow over there in the other row, or maybe I'm talking somebody like really famous, like uh, Billy Graham, you know, somebody who's really a big deal. Actually, no, I'm talking about you and me. If we are Christians, then we are capable. We are capable. We might not be willing. But we are capable. The question is that matter of cooperation we've just spoken about. Will we cooperate and walk or are we just looking and waiting for that stretcher? 
The New King James Version that I use here in my sermons uses the word comprehend, which is actually a pity because it doesn't really fully express the Greek. Your translation might uh, have a word like grasp or apprehend, which is more helpful actually because the sense that is being conveyed isn't merely of the, okay, you know, I think I understand, but it's more of a eureka moment. Yes, I've got it! The Greek word is also the root for the modern word catalepsy, which is a kind of trance or seizure. And I think this gives the idea that the information to be grasped is so exciting and revolutionary that we are just gasping to have it. And when we do get it, the impact pretty much knocks us out. This is the problem with that word comprehend, because it doesn't really carry with it the force of the knowledge or the action of readily taking it on board and making it your own. When we understand what this kind of language really means, then we can really appreciate that we should be earnestly seeking what it describes because it is definitely worth having. Paul is praying that we would be fully equipped and able to grasp the size, the width and length and depth and height. But his object is dimensionless. It isn't expressed in feet or yards or chains or meters because it is so big that there is no earthly unit with which to measure it. It is physically limitless. Now I'm afraid we have a little technical problem here because if you read this text carefully you will note that actually Paul has failed to mention just what it is that has width and length and depth and height. That's not especially obvious in the English translation but apparently in the Greek it's hard to tell what's connected to what in the sentence construction. And there are all kinds of different ideas from various commentators and I'd love to say I could explain them to you but... uh, they generally include sentences like this. The subjunctive with the complementary infinitive gives a perfective force. Well, it might give a perfective force, but it gives me a headache. I mean, that's a very clear exp- explanation to everyone, isn't it? Anyway, some of the subjects about what Paul is describing, they include things like a spiritual temple or a heavenly city, the love of God, his wisdom, the power of God, and the love of Christ. Some of these might seem a bit way out, but there are arguments for each. Some are good and some actually aren't that good. But the general consensus would be that these dimensions most credibly belong to the love of Christ. So, if you should ever notice this in this passage, that's what it's talking about. With consideration, this is quite a thing to understand, that Christ's love is so large that no matter how we may exert ourselves or how intellectually gifted we may be, we just can't get a hold of it. As Paul says, it surpasses knowledge. And the language that he uses means to an extent that exceeds extraordinary. In fact, even with words like that, he is struggling with the utter inadequacy of language to express simple spiritual truth. Yet with the Spirit's aid and with Christ in us, we can know at the deepest level because they are able to act in our spirits, not just our minds. This word know speaks of knowledge that goes beyond the merely factual and into the realm of the experiential. Christianity must be lived and felt. No one can be a Christian just because they have read a book or seen a movie 
They must have the power of God at work within them through the Holy Spirit in Christ. And then they will receive, sorry, then they will perceive the love that caused them to be there. The consequences for the believer are profound because with the knowledge of that love comes enormous and genuine hope and freedom. Hope for a future reconciled to Christ and freedom from pain, sin and death. We probably don't think about things in this way much, but in purely human terms, our efforts through our lives are usually utterly dedicated to avoiding those things. Fear of the future, pain, sin and death. Yet in Christ, in Christ we are utterly released from them. If we have a choice, and we do, why wouldn't we choose him? Let me end then exactly as Paul has in heartfelt and appropriate praise of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, I pray for this apprehension that Paul speaks of, that we would receive the full force of the knowledge of the love of Christ. And with that receipt, Lord, that we wouldn't be able to sit still, that we would be challenged to go out and live it out, to show your love and your glory to the rest of the world, that we would be changed, that we would be fully Christian, we would be fully your church, Lord, at a time in the world's life when people so need an anchor to know what is right and what is wrong. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.